You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. In case you're not familiar with Exodus, all of their cameras are backed by a five-year no BS warranty and even includes five-year theft and damage coverage. They simply have the best trail camera warranty in the industry and have the customer service to back it up, right? The best part about that is their cameras flat out work, period. Now, April 2nd and April 3rd, they are running a 20% off special off the trek and the lift to cameras that's 20 percent. all you have to do is enter the discount code april and you're going to receive 20 percent off your purchase so go to exodusoutdoorgear.com take a look at their cameras and take advantage of the special offer Welcome to another episode, podcast here with Landon Legacy. This is your host, Matt Dye, and my co-host, Adam Keith. He is down and out, a little sick under the weather. So, we've got returning guest on the podcast, Mr. Brian Tao. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing good. You're going to have everybody confused, you know. Last time I was on was, was talking about wet stuff, and now we're going to be talking about a totally different subject. Just, Almost total opposite. Yeah. Upland versus bottomland, so that'll, uh, hey, but it kind of goes to show, again, the passion is about land, the passion's about habitat, and all the creatures and critters we care about use both, so, um, man, how's this last week been, because really, I think that we talked about wetlands last week, is that right? Yes, sir, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we we talked about wetlands last week, and this week, you know, was uh, just work-wise was you know again busy did a little bit of uh, uh chainsaw got a little chainsaw work done but also nice. spent some time uh with a drip torch getting some fire on the ground as well certainly certainly well that's awesome that kind of leads us right into our topic for today and this is one of those topics that is so incredibly wide <laughs> from your burning grasses to timber from spring burns to fall burns to everything in between, the fears, the pros, the cons, everything that revolves around putting fire on the ground, utilizing prescribed fire as a disturbance to manage the habitat. That's what we're talking about today. But before we get into that, just a quick reminder about the QDMA Steward 2 course. That is September 13th through the 16th early bird special has run out but don't forget to sign up as that's going to be a fantastic event um, held in southeast ohio at a client's property um, the folks from cutie may of course are going to be there uh, educating people kip adams matt ross joe hamilton craig harper um, and many more will be there so please join us for that event if you haven't done QDMA Steward 1, be sure to take that course ahead of time and sign up for 2 as well. You'll be amazed at the amount of uh, information shared within these courses. It'll make you that much better of a land manager and deer hunter as well. So check that out at QDMA.com. Brian Tao. Yes, sir. 
fire, 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 fire. I know that you are obviously well-versed in land management, um, love to utilize different disturbances, specifically natural ones, but, you know, in the right setting, um, oftentimes we get the question, okay, well, if I don't use prescribed fire, what what else could I use on the landscape to, to replicate something similar? And, and it's that's a great question because, I think, like we said earlier, you know, prescribed fire, there's there's pros and cons and a lot of, you know, sometimes fears built around that. So um, there's a lot of substitutes out there, or, or I, sh- I shouldn't say substitutes. There's a lot of wannabe substitutes out there for prescribed fire. Um, what are some of the common ones that you see landowners inquiring about or hoping that this other disturbance or other mechanical means may be sufficient or suffice as a substitute for prescribed fire. Absolutely, uh, probably probably the one that's I would I would argue that's probably the the second runner up for me is probably disking. Yeah, uh, and you know and, and 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 this is under obviously very you know very unique circumstances because I'm a, you know just as you guys are uh, I'm a big proponent of soil health. Mm-hmm. And sometimes disking can disrupt that or disturb, you know, some of the some of the microbial activity and some of the natural things that occur there. You know, however, you know, it is a, it is a disturbance, and yeah. it is something that you know it's it's something that that can help promote, um, you know, some some of the species that we that we want to see. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, you, you know, similar similar to prescribed burning. You know, oftentimes when I think about disking, I think about uh, at least something that I want to promote when I want to pr- promote broadleaf plants, sporbs and legumes, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, we, th- you know, think about disking in the fall, sure. August, September time period. Um, you know, I, but you know, disking is probably my second runner up. The other one, you know, you can do some, uh, you know, some level of it, you know, some level of that disturbance also with a bush hogging, right. but you know, bush hogging would be another one. Uh, herbicide is also one as well. Uh, which you, you know, because essentially what you're doing is you're knocking back uh, some of the undesirables and trying to promote some of the desirables. So herbicide can even be a, a, another factor in that. You know, all of which have their time and their place. I mean, that, and that's anytime you're thinking about you know burning, disking, herbicide. You know, bush hog. I'll, I'll be honest with you, I, I consider bush hog less than to a lesser extent of, as a tool in my tool belt, right? But you know, even bu- even a bush hog can be of some benefit. But all of it, again, to me, is just a tool in the tool belt that we pull out under certain under the the right circumstance when we need it the most. I mean, it fits a key. You know, there's a, there's a reason traditionally why we pull out one or the other or over, or over the other, and and so um, you know, in thinking about those, that's kind of how I view them. But those are probably the the three big ones that I would, I would think of, um, you, you could, you could think about chainsaw, but oftentimes even ch- chainsaw alone, just like bush hogging oftentimes doesn't do it. A lot of times herbis there needs to be a, a herbicide treatment to follow those. Sure. So it may be, you know, some of them fire can do a variety of things, but, um, you know, that is probably more beneficial for us, but we can, we can sometimes combine other, other tools in our tool belt, to, e- to equal that but you know there again um probably the cheapest of all of them would be fire you know if i'm going to look at my, my tools tools that i have to grab 
fire is probably the cheapest one. And that's one of, another reason why it's, I, it's kind of my go-to. Yeah, definitely. You know, I, I think no matter what you're trying to do to the landscape, obviously what's on the landscape in a given area determines these practices, you know, whether it is prescribed fire, whether it is herbicide, chainsaw, brush hogging, or forestry mulcher, or um, there's one other one that we, that we listed in there. But, you know, what's there, the composition of that vegetation really helps determine that. And then again, time of the year. But one of the one of the ones that commonly seen here, you know, as we're traveling around touring properties and, and working with landowners, um, that is a lot of people are getting into. I think from the um, maybe maybe the the fun of running the piece of equipment, but skid steer and, and forestry mulching, um, and there's yes. many different types of varieties of these mulchers out there, whether they're drum or kind of the bush hog deck or or whether they've got carbide teeth on a wheel, you know, whatever they are. Um, let's just say it, it's a mulcher. Um, a lot of people, because it is a type of disturbance, are trying, from what we're finding and seeing and discussing with landowners, trying to utilize that almost as a replacement or a substitute to bringing prescribed fire onto a property. Um, of course, there's, there's a lot of things you know to unravel in that and break it down. First off, number one is, that type of disturbance, even though you are truthfully resetting vegetation, a lot of times it happens to be, of course, woody vegetation, but even though you're resetting the vegetation, it still does not have the same effect on the land or those acres as prescribed firewood. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. It, it, just because, you know, number one, as you, you know, the key there, too, is, is you're specifically targeting woodies. Right. And, you know, that's that's something that can also be done with a chainsaw, you know, similar to what we do maybe with TSI. Oftentimes I see the, the rotary mulchers or the or the rotary mowers, whatever you want to call them, um, you know, or for, forest mulchers. Um, oftentimes you see those, again, with like cedars and, and more softwoods uh-huh. because sometimes you get in the, in, in the hardwoods, uh, especially uh, – you try cutting up a blackjack oak with uh, with a with, with a forester. The whole skid steer is going to be it'll, rocking. It'll do it. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it'll do it, but it's, it's going to take you a while, and it's going to be yeah. It, it, I think it's going to rock you pretty good. You know, it's as, a lot of wear and tear on that equipment. Yeah, exactly. It's a lot of wear exactly. and tear. Exactly. So you know, but you know, again, it's it's a type of disturbance uh, because I, I think that what you're doing is you're definitely opening up the the canopy and, and and allowing sunlight to the forest floor. Yep. Um, but but that doesn't always accomplish that that goal of 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 truly of truly promoting what you want. I mean, right. and, and what I mean by that is, yes, it is accomplishing a task. And 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 if I was to run fire through an area that that had a closed canopy, I I'm really not going to accomplish what I want either. I would, mm-hmm. you know, and mm-hmm. and what I would argue is that mulcher is definitely. In, in many situations is something maybe the first maybe the first step a preliminary yeah, i don't know yes. that it's necessarily the last step because Absolutely. uh just simply because you know there's many seeds that need to be scarified yes. uh by fire you know it requires that heat to has a hard a hard outer shell so to speak on the outside of that seed and that and that allows many of the the many of the seeds that we like and and that we want to promote oftentimes in the you know out on, out across the landscape that's what allows them to sit there and 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 sit there and reside 
for decades. Lay, lay dormant in the seed bank. That's what we're talking yeah. about. You know, hey, does, yeah. is, has your seed bank been disturbed? And what are the disturbances yeah. that are there? You know, talk, disking, obviously, that that will disrupt and make those seeds unviable. But if they've been laying there dormant in the seed bank because of these mm-hmm. hard shells around them, right? they're, they're you know, potentially viable still. And we're talking right. 20 years, that that kind of time right. length on, on some of Absolutely. these seeds. Or longer. I mean, yeah, you know, or much longer. Yeah, and because and, it's amazing, pretty amazing once you run fire across the landscape and, and, and open it up to sunlight as well. You know what pops up? How much? How much native vegetation is already there? How much seed is already there? Um, yeah. But you know, but like I said, that the mulcher I think is you know I, I don't want to take away from it, but I think it has it again. It has it's a tool and it has its place, and it should be utilized. You know, as as often as it needs to be used. Uh, but yet, I don't know. I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't say that it totally replaces fire. Absolutely you know, maybe it, it may be the first step leading up to fire or the, or a step just prior to. Uh, uh, yeah, a, a couple things there in that that you mentioned, Brian, um, that I'll, I'll piggyback on and, and take a, another another route with. The opening up the canopy, specifically in, in timber, obviously, uh-huh. prescribed fire in closed canopy timber, and we see this a lot. Again, it's beneficial. But it it runs its course in a matter of a few weeks as the canopy then opens up and you have complete leaf out, your sunlight, your energy source for the growth that was happening on the ground is completely cut off. So removing and opening up the canopy is 100% necessary to get the expression on the forest floor that you're looking for. And I think that that concept right there, I don't, whether it's shows or documentation, blogs, video, whatever it is, has not highlighted the fact that for optimal regeneration, you have to have sunlight through the entire growing season to get the response that you're truthfully looking for in timber, closed, well, not timber, oh, not closed canopy, but timber settings. If you don't have sunlight, you don't have one of the three things that you need for plant growth, soil, water, and sunlight. You you need it. You have to have it. And we're seeing limited results. And and I think, again, people's perception of the fire is they're doing a lot of good. And again, it's better than not burning your timber, but we're we're missing the follow-up or the initial step of opening up that canopy, whether it was with a mulcher or whether it was with a chainsaw or whether it was with a hack and squirt treatment um, on some TSI beforehand is incredibly important. Another thing that I've seen a lot with the forestry mulcher is that much debris on the ground in the form of mulch. When it lays against the ground, it absorbs so much moisture and when it rains, it takes a long time for those wood chips to dry out. And a lot of times, if you're going in there and doing a lot of heavy mowing or brush hogging in timber, saplings, this and that, and you have a lot of mulch on the ground, it's very tough for then a fire to come through. In comparison to going ahead and, and hacking and squirting those trees, letting them die, standing and dry out, and then when they do fall over, they degrade so much faster or they're consumed by the fire because they're dry. And, 
or chainsaw when you just drop the whole tree, the fire will still go through a canopy um, tree top because, you know, most times that canopy is open. It's not holding that much moisture, whereas that mulcher creates a blanket of just wood chips on the ground. And a lot of times the fire will get to that and just smoke and smolder and won't continue up, you know, throughout the rest of the fire, the, the, the burn area itself. Have you seen that yourself? I have, but, you know, definitely, like, as you said, it depends on how much is mulched, you know, or how, or how much is, is, is truly chipped. Um, but, you know, that it can be a factor. But, you know, the, the other, the, the biggest thing is, is that what, you know, in, in doing that, you, you've got to make sure that you, you know, obviously you can't control, I mean, you can't, you can't control how much mulch and how much chips you're going to put out there because you got to do the job you got to do if, if, right. that's what, if that's the tool you have at hand to utilize. And, and that's the quickest, fastest way you have to get it done. I totally get it. Um, you know, so it's, but it's, it's, it's also good to understand too, you want to get that fuel off. Um, you know, and that is the one, that's the one instance. And, in, uh, and what I mean by that is because it, that, that much fuel could down the road lead up to more problems or more issues uh, if you do not remove it. Um, you know, the other thing too, is by, I feel like, you know, and it's, you know, I, I, and we, we touched on this, but I think, I think it's good to point out too, that we talked about, you know, closed canopy forest and burning mm-hmm. and, and totally remove it, you know, while we're, t- while, while I'm kind of hitting fuel there, we also have to realize, I mean, you can just, you know, run fire through a closed canopy forest. And just to remove fuel, just to remove, remove potential fuel for potentially getting too hot, uh, you know, and, and causing other, other harm or other dangers. And, and the other thing with that mulching is that sometimes you may want to run fire through it. If it's a heavily wooded, forested area, you may want to run fire through that, burn the leaf litter off. If it's, you've got a thick stand of leaf litter, I think it's good to go ahead and remove that leaf litter. Before, Before you add you more cover. fuel. Exactly. Right. And, you know, and, and, and then at the same time, what you also do is you let that, you know, it'll be two to three years uh, traditionally that you would come back through with fire, you know, at least. So, you know, what that does is that just puts some, I don't know, that, that stuff become, becomes degraded and starts mm-hmm. to decay a little faster. Um, it becomes more organic, um, you know, more organic material. And the leaves just kind of pile on top. So, you know, and, and then the leaves kind of dry out. And so it's, you know, so that's something to consider is if you're going to do a lot of, a lot of heavy mulching, what I would probably do is remove that, remove that fuel that's there, uh, which is the leaves. If it's, if it's very thick, then come in and mulch. Now, the, obviously the one caution is that once you remove that leaf layer, uh, you get, you got to watch, you know, if you're using a big, big heavy piece of equipment, you know, a skid steer with the forestry mulcher isn't as big but if you're going to use you know one of those great big mulchers yep. uh, you know you may you may cause more rutting uh if you do it after a rain or something like that so sure. just i mean just again it's just you know just tools you gotta kind of weigh your options look at what it is look at look at the situation look at where you're at um you know but you know i i also realize you could use them for cedar removal out in you know in gr- more grass on an open areas mm-hmm. uh so you know so but and i, I Again, I'm not opposed to doing it, but I think there's a. Um, I still think fire is going to be uh, a key component in that. No, without without question, and, and 
we're talking about various tools that are all in the toolbox for a land manager or you know or or an option out there so right. there's not a situation honestly that you get to every property it's like well you got to do this step this step and this step and then this step every acre every slope is just a little bit different and and so the prescription and the way that you would go about it to get the end result is going to be a little bit different and that's based again on on time resources that you have to be able to devote to this um but i i can't stress enough the the importance though of having a plan first off and a goal and a direction and then from there determining your best route to get there and that's why you know the forestry mulching may play a factor into it the chainsaw may play a factor into it at some point hacky squirt may play a factor into it but at no matter no matter what prescribed fire once you get it set or preliminary may be the best route then you get set and prescribed fire is the maintenance tool the phase the maintenance phase to keep that habitat at that place i think i think the biggest thing you know what we're seeing is that forestry mulcher or the brush hog it's trying to be or or take place of the fire in the maintenance phase of a property and i think that's that's the kind of uh if you will the no-no of hey there's more out there that you could get out of the land if you introduce the prescribed fire versus versus just brush hogging um, and trying to use that in a, as a replacement for a prescribed fire in a maintenance phase. So would would you agree with that? Oh yeah, no, I, I, you know, I, I would agree 100%. Just simply, you know, it's we again, you, you need to do what you feel comfortable with, and um, it's it, it's a tool. It, it's that tool in that tool belt that you, if you don't feel exactly comfortable with it today, you might go ahead just to ensure that stuff doesn't get too far along or too far away from you, mm-hmm. that you go ahead and you might do some mowing. You might do some bush hogging or some mulching or what have you, but don't still don't exclude the fire. Uh, and, and regardless of what your mom told you, you know, you do not pee in bed at nighttime if you like fire, <laughs> least, so, you know, but, you know, at least I, I don't think so. My wife hasn't complained about it yet, so, you know, but, but long story short though, is that, you know, it, you, it's when it comes to fire, if you're, I, you know, you should always have respect for it and, you know, Absolutely. people, you know, and, and so people, so I, I, what I tell folks all the time is that if, if you're not scared or at least have some respect for the fire, then I don't want you anywhere near a match. Yes. Uh, you know, I mean, you know, if, if as long as you have some, some fear, or some respect for that fire, I'm okay with that because then you're not going to get too carried away. Uh, you're not going to do anything necessarily that I'd rather somebody be too cautious than not cautious enough. Right. Uh, right. You know, when it comes to stringing fire and, and working with fire, and so, you know, just because you feel, might feel uncomfortable with it doesn't mean in, – and in, in, I shouldn't say uncomfortable, but just because you have a little bit of hesitation with it, that doesn't mean that's, that's a bad thing. That's what, actually what I – that's what you'd want. What, so, what that so means don't is, yeah. That, don't, want that hold, right. don't let that hold you back, you know, that little hesitation to hold you back because you don't tr- truly understand it. Now, I mean, granted – I'm in Missouri, and, and when I have some benefits here that other folks may not have, uh, such mm-hmm. as, you know, we can, 
to be honest with you, we can pretty much stream fire in most locations. Yep. There are some more urban areas. Uh, some, you know, I've, I've got a friend that, um, you know, has some property in Jefferson County. Uh, mm-hmm. It's a suburb of St. Louis area. And in long story short is that, you know, there's, they can't stream fire. I mean, he's got a really nice uh, old field mm-hmm. uh, type of setting, about yep. 15 acres. And he, he just simply cannot use fire just because the fire department will not allow him to it, allow him to do it. Uh, just it's just something that it's it's it there's a permitting process and it's a honestly it's a it's kind of a, a bureaucratic nightmare as they say sure, sure. so yeah. you know so they, they do it a little differently they do it with a combination of disking and mowing you know but you know that's a situation where you just you you kind of have to roll with the punches uh but you know in many you know other other states and other areas you know that's that's going to be another key key factor to pay attention to as well though as to you know, because fire may be, may be something that may be a reason why you don't have fire in your tool belt is because um, just simply because of your locale or your location. You know, but uh, mo- in most states, they're, you know, whether it's the, you know, your Department of Natural Resources oftentimes has a, a program or an assistance program of some sort or a guidance program that will, you know, help you with you know, becoming a little more familiar mm-hmm. and a little more, you know, ho- hopefully alleviate some of those fears of fire as well. And, and, and so the best thing to do is go through those programs, research it. Uh, you know, here, like I said, here in Missouri, we're kind of fortunate because, you know, our, our state agency does does hands-on programs, you know, to where you have Education, a fire training yeah. for landowners. Uh, anybody can go to it, but it's called a landowner uh, burn workshop. And and then a part of that, the second part of that is actually to get out on a prescribed burn. And, and you know, but, you know. Well, that's weird. Hello? Hey. That was what weird. Happened? I don't know. <laughs> I just said call failure. Just, like, dropped it. Oh, I wonder uh, if it was my phone. Wonder if it's my phone for some reason. I don't know. If you had, if you had trouble, you know where we're at. Yeah, I, I I'm, I'm at home. I, I don't know. Well, well no, 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 I was gonna say, do you know where we're at in the talk? Oh That's yeah, yeah. I uh, you, you cut off, um, right where you're like, or basically you can pick up and say, well, Missouri offers, or the second part of, um, the class would be going out and actually being okay. a part of a prescribed fire. Gotcha. Yep. Feel free whenever we'll take a quick pause here and then jump in there. Okay. You know, here here in Missouri, we have uh, the second part to that, that whole training course or that landowner workshop is you actually go out and you're, you get on a fire. They have a prescribed burn set up to where uh, you actually get out there, you actually get out there with it. And I get get on a fire with trained professionals, and they kind of help guide you through it. I realize that may not be uh, something a luxury you have in your neighborhood or your area, your state or region that you're in. Uh, but you know, I, I highly recommend you take advantage of anything similar to that, just because it does help alleviate some of those fears and and some of the hesitation you might have with fire. Um, and, and 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 trust me, you're not going to be. You, the first time or two you do it, uh, I, I have no doubt that you're going to have all of those fears kind of well up and, sure. and, and be there. Um, but, you know, it's 
what what I would what I would tell you is if you have caution, you have reservations, just add more people. Yeah. You know, you know, just just have have more people and equipment than you than you way more than you think you need, and you know, uh, you know, offer offer uh, cold Pepsi's and and steak after you're done, and and uh, and you know, just just anybody that shows up and anybody that thinks halfway responsible, and uh, you know, and and just have more people and like I said, more resources than what you. That's that would be my biggest recommendation. To anybody. Help alleviate some of those some of those reservations. The, the, the biggest thing on, on prescribed fires is eyeballs. You know, just having yes. people watch the line after you've dropped the flame. You know, you want to continue and progress that um, that backing fire off the the fire break itself. So you gotta sometimes maybe it's walk around a corner or get out of sight of some of the the fire. So if you have people staged up along that fire break watching, make sure you're you're not having anything jump. Um, you know, you're watching flame heights and everything like that, and you're in good communication with them. You know, having those people is certainly essential and makes your peace of mind that much better as you're continuing to uh, execute the prescribed fire. You know, and that that goes back to, you know, the amount of acres that you can do and the feasibility of prescribed fire as a tool to manage lots of acres in a short amount of time in comparison back to the the maintenance or you know trying to substitute a a mowing job versus the prescribed fire when you're looking at time and the resources and equipment that needs to be done you know I, I can't tell you how many acres have been burnt by having backpack spray backpack blower rakes and drip torches and that's about it Right. From an equipment standpoint and, and covering in in an afternoon with the right weather and right prep work. So fire lines have already been, you know, installed and are ready to rock and roll. We're talking a couple hundred acres in an afternoon that's been, if you will, maintained. How long would that take from a, a mowing standpoint? A long, long time. Yeah. Hey, you know, and, and and you hit a you hit a big a big point there is, uh, which is when it comes to the fire line and prep work. If the day of the burn really should be a nice relaxing day, mm-hmm. uh, if everything goes right, if conditions are right, and and, and I don't want to get into, I don't want to get into specific conditions because sure. it, it 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 does vary from grasslands. You know what you know what Absolutely. you might want compared to woodlands or. You know, or maybe even certain, you know, a glade, a glade compared to a, a savanna or a woodland burn. But long, but, but, um, you know, the prep work should be done ahead of time, and the day of the burn, you know, it really should be just a matter of stringing fire. That's and right. you know, and, and and that prep work is a fire line construction. If it's grass fields, this is easy as having you know a disc a disc line around it. Yep. And, and, you know now. And this is this is an occasion where once again I think a bush hog is really really good uh, as a really key can be a key factor uh, because if you've got really tall grass you know right up against a uh, a portion that you that you want left unburned or or a neighbor's property or whatever I really like to bush hog a lot I, I like to bush hog a line down right and uh, get you know get that get that height that flame height down so to speak certainly <laughs> and and so if that's going to be part of my line you know, um, then I want to get that on the ground. 
that way it's only uh, a couple inches to maybe a foot tall compared to being 10 to 12 feet tall potentially right um you know so i mean that that is a, a you know another another point to where at least mowing can be a factor but it's just a benefit to my fire that's or right to my fire regime uh, but but more than anything is you know that prep work that goes in uh ahead of time is is what really matters everybody thinks that when you're lighting the fire is is the is the is the is the big point and it's really not uh, right. i mean it it, it, it is a there are some key essential elements to that day that, that yes, that can dictate some, you know, how, you know, whether or not it stays in the fire line, so to speak, but really and truly it's the prep work and the, and the work done ahead of time that really and truly matters. And there's a lot of things that you can do on an annual basis from, from fire lines and setting up the property appropriately that alleviate a lot of the, the work up front, um, you know, before fire, that you know the the fire uh season if you will um you know from a hunting access act point of view golly i'm having a tough time tonight here from a hunting point of view you know you want to access your property from the outside in and so developing that road system from from an overall point of view of a land manager you want to go from the outside in so there should be a road system or a nice fire break already established a permanent one that you're accessing the property with and that you all you might have to do is just either disc it right real quick or come in with a backpack blower and just blow off the leaves and you're ready to rock and roll. It's not like you're having to constantly reopen a lot of fire lanes if you're setting up the property from a hunting access standpoint appropriately and a lot of the other uh, fire breaks that you might be using are internal road systems, and and that's certainly highly variable um, across a property, or or maybe it's a the edge of an ag field or the edge of a food plot, what you know, whatever it may be. But you know, a lot of times the the hand built line tends to be pretty minimal. Um, so just maintaining those fire breaks, and another thing that can be done is planting those in a perennial. Um, food plot like like a clover or broadcasting wheat the fall before you know you're to burn that fire line just so there is some green vegetation in there as well just to make it that much stronger of a fire break an established one um, there's a lot of things that you can do ahead of time that all go into the property improvement and huntability of the farm by implementing prescribed fire there oh absolutely just make make it easy as make it as easy on yourself as you possibly can and in utilizing those existing roadways and, as you said, food plots. Um, and, and, you know, if you're, say, it's an old field situation or a grass situation where you're burning grass, you know, it's don't be afraid to uh, plant a clover, as you said, a clover or wheat strip, yeah. you know, around that. You kind of have a green a green line, so to speak, that as, and a green perimeter. Um, and, you know, you, you utilize, as much as, utilize as much as you can to your favor. And, and to minimize the amount of work that you have to put in, you have to do, um, you know, it, but you know, there, there is one, one that I can't wait to hear more about it. Mm-hmm. Um, but there is a one situation on the interior that I, I, I can think about it. And I, and I tried this and, and I'll tell you, I'll tell you the results that I had were slight, unfortunately slightly different, <laughs> but 
Marcus Lashley with the University uh-huh. uh, Mississippi State University. You know, he's doing some really neat research just you know, on fire in general, all different perspectives on fire and sure. habitat. Uh, part of it is, you know, timing of fire, uh, which – you know, which is actually, and he's looking at more timing of fire in woodland settings. Yes. Uh, you know, and promote and promoting some broadleafs, uh, forbs, and lagoons. That, you know, more in, in timber tracks. You know, but one of the things that he did that was pretty neat, and I, I don't know if you guys have touched on this or or not, but you can actually go to their podcast and and they actually, um, uh, oh, it's Bow Dear Ridge University. Burning, right? Yeah, Dear University, I believe. Yep. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, and. Uh, you know, but anyway, but they're on their podcast. They kind of highlight it too. You know, uh, Marcus, uh, Doctor Lashley, kind of hi- highlights it a little bit, but he calls it bow stand burning, to where he's just simply going in there, blowing a line real quickly. You know, about thirty yard circle around a tree stand location, mm-hmm. and you know, and, and there's any, but he's doing it actually in the fall. You know, about a month prior to hunting season opening. Right. This may not work in all mm-hmm. locations. I mean, this may not work if. if you know, but if your dates, you know, say that the northern the northern locations is northern part of the U.S. is where I could see this being a little more minimal. Yep. You know, probably have, because the growing seasons are shorter. Uh, you know, but in in the vast majority of the country, I think you can probably go in there and and do this uh, just simply burning a thirty yard circle around your tree stand, and and the, the results in the deer increase was was tenfold. It you was know, just very, right, it was right in that location. Yep. And yeah, what that I mean, was was just a response from the woody vegetation re-sprouting, and all that new growth was certainly attractive. The browse um, yep. it, it added around that that circle around the tree stand. Um, like I said, their their sightings and their hunting uh, efficiency drastically increased, and, and that just right. goes to show you that okay. Holy cow! If if I can do that in and around stand locations, which is a very viable option, as they're proving right there, what does that look like from you know the greater landscape of the property? You know, I'm right. going through and doing 80 acres of that through that. You know, in let's say in the springtime, I've got so much vegetation that is offering high quality forage and attraction to those areas, as well as the cover aspect. Right. Um, you know there's endless possibilities to be able to do that right you know you don't have to necessarily just neck it down to okay well there's a road here there's a creek here or a river here or a food plot edge here that's my unit you can go and do specific areas that you know you're going to be hunting Um, but again that is just goes to show a perfect illustration of deer and the landscape and the vegetation is adapted to prescribed fire and it's for a good reason because the way plants grow and the way that the landscape used to be was tolerant to these disturbances it's natural for them to experience prescribed fire a lot of species do much better with that on the landscape than not and as we see wildlife then quickly respond to that type of disturbance um, you know, I was talking to someone the other day and, and, you know, Oak Hickory forests, they're obviously adapted to fire. And one of the right. ways that we know that they're adapted to fire in comparison to, let's say, you know, a North Slope, um, that's just chock full of maples is look at their leaves. When, when the leaves fall in the fall and they begin to dry up, how do they dry up? All the right. edges begin to curl and they form a a, if you will, bowlish like form. They don't just lay flat against the ground. 
and allow moisture just to get packed on top of them. When they curl, it allows wind to get under there and dry them out, making an environment suitable to carry fire. Whereas in other climates and other types of leaves and situations, they don't do that. So if right. you're pre- predominantly in an oak hickory setting, or should be, and not anymore, your area, your landscape, your acres, your property should have fire there to be able to manage that landscape. It's mind-blowing. But truthfully, uh, so many areas of the country, whether, again, your plains, um, you're down south in the pine country, where there's longleaf or short-life, short-leaf pine savannas and mixed grasslands, or you're in oak hickory forest, those landscapes were, util- were u- basically utilized prescribed fire to maintain them as such. Again, those were lightning strike fires, or a lot of Native Americans use prescribed fire from a management standpoint. And it gets more into the hunting side, and more, but it kind of highlights... Um, highlights that dependence by wildlife, but just in my travels, you know, I've traveled, been fortunate enough to travel across the country, literally uh, chasing, chasing turkeys. I hate them that much with a passion. I want to kill them all. Right. But, yeah, uh, right. you know, but yeah, but uh, no, and, and when I go anywhere, you know, and I've, I've got this habit, oftentimes I end up on public land uh, quite a bit, but one of the first, one of the first phone calls I make anytime I'm looking at a location or we're, we're going to a location, I call the, the area biologist or the area manager and say, hey, when, did, when and where have you run fire through anywhere? Yeah. And, you know, and it's it, it, whether it's chasing Osceola's, you know, down in sure. Florida, you know, uh, or out in Kansas. I mean, can't, you know, in Kansas or my Florida, my Florida hunts, they, they'd already been those areas of the Palmetto Flats had yep. already been burnt. And, and but but obviously they were heavily packed with turkeys then go to kansas it's amazing you go out there and literally the you know the kansas uh, kansas parks and wildlife might be uh you know one location we had we had a a house in which we sat on the back deck drinking drinking cold pepsis and and watching uh watching the uh um you know the the parks and wildlife burn burn off a field right off our back deck yeah you know and that very next morning, the smoke was still coming up. Mm-hmm. You know, they burnt most of the night. That very next morning, there was turkeys in the middle of that. In fact, we shot a couple of turkeys in the middle of that black while still smoldering and smoking. And I've yeah. seen the same thing in Missouri. Oh, yeah. You know, and, and just, you know, when you start looking at, you know, what happens immediately afterwards, I mean, you know, because that immediate response, obviously, from turkeys is you got a bunch of, you know, You've got a bunch of golden roasted bugs that are laying there. They're a whole Easy lot easier pickings. to catch when they're when they're stopped and they're still, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, you know who doesn't like a good good grilled uh, bug? Yeah, but uh, they don't know, have so. to scratch anymore. All the food sources that they would typically exactly. scratch are just—it's a wide open canvas. Honestly, what it's like is is a monoculture crop field of soybeans. They don't yes. have to dig through anything. It's just there. It's just available. It's all the food you want come and get it and that's what it does for the turkeys it's immediate yeah. responses you don't have to wait weeks it's immediate in most locations yeah. you know and then over the next few days as things start to green back up you know deer deer roll in and they browse on it the turkeys still browse on some of that green stuff yeah. dropping up you know but you know but all the same thing you got bugs you got seeds just like you said 
it's all right there and it's a smorgasbord for them. So, you know, and, but once again, that kind of shows and highlights some of that dependence, you know, of, you know, on fire because it helps promote that. And, you know, and just to, but I think what really highlights, you know, the environmental dependence in most locations on fire, especially, you know, and when we're talking about dependence on fire, oftentimes we're not talking about wetlands, you know, wetland areas like we were last week. We're talking about more upland locations. But that dependence on fire is highlighted by something I said earlier by, you know, as opposed to just simply using a bush hog or just using that forestry mulcher, you have a lot of, you have a seed bank there that needs to be scarified. That heat, mm-hmm. It requires that heat to pop that outer shell or that hard, that hard shell to actually allow that seed to truly germinate and respond. And that shows you that that's, it's an, it's, it's, it's fire is a part of the environment. Yes. You know, and, 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 you know, I grew up, I, you know, I, I, I was born in the bicentennial 1976. So, you know, I grew up in the era where you wake up on a Saturday morning when you're watching cartoons, you got Woodsy the Owl and, and Smokey the Bear, you know, that were on, you know, in between a lot of commercials for the cartoons that you're watching. Right. And, and, you know, and, and they did a, and especially Smokey the Bear did a tremendous, tremendous, you know, a campaign. I mean, but you know, that campaign. initial camp, that initial campaign was uh, only you can prevent forest fires. But if you, if anybody's paying attention or you paid very close attention and some of you may have even seen this, you know, but they have since the U S forest service has since changed that campaign, that slogan to only you can prevent wildfires right. uh, simply because, you know, they, they did a really, really super good job of, of showing we need to, you know, suppressing fire because, you know, oftentimes we as people, we oftentimes think in absolutes, meaning yes, that, do. you know, we, we think if that's good, then, you know, if fire's bad, then we should take all fire away. Well, that's not exactly the case. Right. And, you know, and, and once again, those grass seeds are kind of, a, I think, the perfect example of highlighting why we actually do need fire is because those native plants that have adapted here, that have been here, that God put on this earth was, was made for fire. And, and so, you know, uh, that's something when you kind of, you know, when we start thinking about it, we really need to, you know, to look at that. And, you know, the, you know, the one thing about timing a fire, though, that I point out is we all, we, we definitely want to look at it because we have, you know, we don't want to be, we don't want to be running a lot of stringing a lot of fire from about April 15th to say July 15th in grassland specifically, you know, you know, even in the woodlands from, from some point, I mean, because, you know, we're going to have turkey nests out there. We're going to have other ground nesting birds, you know, but in grassland settings, we got quail, we got pheasants, we got other birds. Um, and so we really got to, we really have to think about, you know, some of the timing, you know, of some of the species we want to promote and we want to benefit. Um, but that, but that timing can also uh, benefit us when it comes to the responses that we want. Yes. Um, and, and I don't know if you guys have covered this in a previous podcast or not, but oftentimes the, you know, the later, the later you do, the later you run fire, you know, into the spring, the more likely you are promoting more grasses and, and it's kind of doing mm-hmm. more harm to some of the more broad leaves, the forbs and lagoons. However, there comes a switch, you know, about late summer, July, August time period to where actually, if you run fire through much of those grasslands, you know, you actually kind of, you kind of uh, curtail or, or kind of uh, thin back some of the some of the grasses, and you promote more broadleaves such yes. as forbs and lagoons. 
And so, you know, some of that timing can can be a key factor. The same thing, you know, here in Missouri, we often and it's and I'm gonna throw the date out there, but I'll also tell you why. It's just a kind of a magical date because it's really and truly green up, you know, in our timbered areas. If we're looking at a timber burn specifically, we we don't want to do much past April fifteenth. Mm-hmm. So number one for turkey nesting, but number two is because we're going to have green up of our timber and that sap's really pushing up. And even though many of our trees are adapted, you know, the trees that we want to promote are adapted for fire. We still don't want to cause fire scarring any more than we have to, or cause any more, any more damage necessarily than we have to. And so oftentimes we kind of shut that down, you know, simply to kind of minimize that Uh, and, you know, called growing season burns. I think there's a benefit for growing season burns, Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I, I, oftentimes I think that happens. We should do that more, though, in July and August, you know, late July and August, more so than, than the late spring or early summer. Okay. I think it should be just later in the year, um, you know, but if we're going to think about kind of a growing season burn. But the long story short is timing has a major, major factor as well on the kind of response we get. And and so, you know, and, and again, some of those things that I told you, are more Missouri specific. So, you know, but each, each neighborhood, each area, each region is going to have slightly different variation of that. Um, you know, but your, you know, your, you know, your local conservation, uh, department, you know, DNR should be able to help you out with some of that. And if you have, and if they have trouble, I, I would reach out to, depending on where you're at, I would also reach out to maybe Bureau of Land Management or the U.S. Forest Service or folks like that as well, because, you know, oftentimes they have f- folks that are, you know, you talk, talk about some fire bugs. You know, those mm-hmm. guys are those guys. Those guys are arsonists. You know, they just they're just they're just, <laughs> they they're, love they're just giving up. They're just giving a license to run a match around. Yep. So, you know, but uh, but those guys have you know truly understand fire behavior. Oftentimes, definitely, definitely, and that's that's important. Um, again, and I think that that goes back to, you know, possibly the, some of the fears that are associated there with utilizing prescribed fire is just not knowing how fire behaves in different conditions and we all know how weather can change rather drastically in a matter of minutes or or, or hours um and topography plays a huge role into fire behavior um fuel loads but you just have to get experience doing so you just have to be around it to feel comfortable and so if you're if you're a landowner out there thinking hey i i really really want to try prescribed fire well, reach out to those people who you know are using it. Join them on prescribed fires. Volunteer on the prep work all the way down to the execution of fire day and walk with them as they're, you know, putting the fire on the ground. Step back and watch how that fire reacts in these different areas, how when it hits this grass patch, it'll... Um, You'll have a little bit higher flame height than when it slows back down or when it hits a shaded spot versus a spot that's got sunlight or different fuel loads um, in the leaf litter. It's incredible, but you can learn a lot about how fire reacts just by being out there. That sounds like a no-brainer, but if you're if you're new to it, you have to have the experience um, to feel comfortable enough to getting it actually implemented there on your property. Um, Brian, another another question that always comes up um, when we're talking about doing prescribed fire. We, t- we t- chatted about it a little bit there at the beginning, um, but would you recommend in most cases, let's say someone someone wants to do prescribed fire and they need to do TSI first. 
or in addition, a lot of the question becomes, is it okay for me to do TSI, dropping trees, open up the sunlight, and then do prescribed fire? Or would you recommend in most situations to prescribe fire first and then drop the trees? I know that's a loaded question. I know we chatted a little bit about it, but there's more there to unpack and unravel. Yeah, based in a lot of a lot of the question though um, is based on fuel load, and and yeah. and that's that's the basis for and not necessarily biological question, but and and that and you're absolutely right. It has to do with fuel load, and and so what what you first have to, and again it's it's a measurement. It's you've got to you've got to take an evaluation. How much fuel is on the ground right now? And and then you have to look at what fuel you're going to be dropping. Uh, if you're going to be if you're cutting hardwoods in, um, that, that's what you're that's what you're dropping, mm-hmm. you know, on the ground and say um, even February, you know, January, February, and that's what you're putting on the ground, planning to burn in say March or April, you know, March or early April, or whatever whatever time frame works best for you. Really and truly, it's not a. That's not a big deal. Not you can go ahead and drop those. At all. You can go ahead and drop those. Yes. But if you're cutting, if you're cutting trees, say in August or hardwoods in August or September, or you're or you're dropping cedars, mm-hmm. um, I I highly recommend going ahead, especially if you have much of a fuel load there. You've never burnt before, and you have a lot of and what a I'm build talking up about of fuel, leaf litter. fuel in this situation is is leaf litter yes. exactly. So we want you, let's thin that leaf. Let's 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 get rid of that 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 long that long time buildup of fuel and leaf litter. Let's get rid of that, and then let's go ahead and, and let's go ahead and and then go ahead and do your TSI. And then about two to three years later, come back in with another with another fire regime, and 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 so um, the whole purpose again for that is to reducing the amount of fuel because. I'm not. I'm not worried about what we're dropping on the ground. What I'm worried about is what we're leaving. Mm-hmm. And so we don't want we don't want the fire to get too hot, so that it scarifies or even kills you know trees that we're that we don't want because of because if we're doing TSI. We're selecting for we're selecting against trees. And we're, we're selecting. We're trying for to promote trees. healthier trees. Exactly. So so long story short is anything that we left standing. We re- obviously we don't want damaged uh, or harmed, um, which also leads up to the point too that if you've got some re- you know dep- you know directional felling some of those trees at times is is a big factor as well mm-hmm. uh, because you don't want to if you if you put a cedar on you know it may be two two or three years before you do the next burn you know but if still yet if you go ahead and drop that cedar or you go ahead and drop that that other top right on right up against another tree you know that's that's standing that you want to continue to to grow or to kind of be your seed tree so to speak well you're probably going to scar it whenever you run fire through so it's good you know you can also go back in after you drop them and and i can tell you it's a lot of work to do that you know but you can go back in and and pull those tops away from those trees that you want Mm -hmm. to uh you know that that you want to preserve so to speak or at least hopefully hope hoping to preserve Right. So, you know, that's a, you know, so that's something that, you know, to keep in mind is just your fuel load. And oftentimes it does, it has to do with your, your leaf litter, um, you know, what you have on the ground before you drop a little bit to do with timing, but species off, obviously, because if it's cedar, regardless, 
it, it, it doesn't matter. You know, cedar's going to be hot regardless. Yeah. So, you know, you know what I, what I always recommend with cedar, if it's a, you know, if it's, if it's going to be a lot of cedar, the best thing for that I recommend to do is go ahead and if there is any leaf layer there, you know, oftentimes when you have a lot of cedar, you don't have a lot of leaf layer there anyway. Nope. But if it, but if it's a lot of cedar that's mixed in with some hardwoods and there's some leaf, there's enough fuel there to go ahead and burn it. I definitely recommend burning it. Uh, if there's not, if there's not enough to burn it, um, because the hardwoods are more scattered in there, I, I still, what I recommend is I still recommend not to burn for two to three years, um, simply because what you know in doing so what you allow you know by dropping those trees traditionally you've allowed that sunlight to to kind of reach the forest floor it doesn't it doesn't help you know to pop any of those seeds necessarily that need that need that heat you know but what what you're doing but what you're doing over that two to three years you're allowing a lot of those cedar needles to fall off yes and at least a a high percentage of them to fall down and kind of melt so that, you know, your fire in two to three years isn't nearly as intense or nearly as hot. If you have a lot of cedars mixed into your timber and you try and burn it while the cedar is orange, that's a hot, hot fire. <laughs> yeah. Very high yeah. high flame heights. Um, you As fire approaches a lot of these cedars, you will, you will obviously be able to visually see the increasing intensity of fire. But you will be able to hear it, the snapping, the crackling, the popping, and the sound of woof as that cedar goes up. So if we discourage that, and I was in, I was in Kansas this past week, and as a lot of people know, Kansas is getting uh, certainly encroached by a lot of cedar um, in areas that don't get prescribed fire, similar to Oklahoma, Missouri, um, and other portions of the of the U.S. But in in certain areas, saying okay you have just straight cedar and mixed in with kind of a more of a shorter grass prairie um, setting. But honestly, the number of cedars that are in here, come in with the tree shear, it's flat ground, shear them. You're going to have to wait for these to dry out because of the number that are here, I would not recommend then immediately after um, using prescribed fire. You will need to wait a couple of years. Just let them lay, let them dry out, and then return with the prescribed fire. They will drop their cedar needles, and the sunlight will come in. You'll start to get that regeneration of the grasses and forbs that you're looking for. But if you do it too soon, I'm afraid that with the little experience of prescribed fire that you have, you will then not want to complete the rest of the project. And there was many areas that needed it. So if that's something new to you, definitely managing fuel loads is important. Um, and the another... I guess the thing to keep in, and consider when using prescribed fire for the first time is obviously don't try and go out and burn 20 acres. Don't try and go do 40 acres or 100 acres. Do a very manageable section. Do Burn an acre. Learn how. Scale up over time. Um, if you need to break up units and, and make them um, size-wise fit the number of people that you have there present that day, well, then do so. Don't bite off more than you can chew or feel comfortable with. Slowly graduate into larger um, burns that are that are maybe more complex, have more terrain in them. Um, just start very simple and work from there. But at the same time, as you're starting simple, working from there, go back and watch the response. Watch how maybe set up a trail camera because, like you said, animals react to this. 
animals are attracted to this within hours. Um, and then as that green green up occurs, there's a lot of activity associated around these birds. So be sure to monitor it because, again, you're just kind of test driving prescribed fire at that point. See if it's something that you want to do for the rest of the property. Um, most likely, and hopefully it, it is, that type of disturbance that you're choosing to use. But, um, again, you don't have to jump in full force, dive, dive in the deep end off the high dive. Start slow. Work your way through the kiddie pool all the way to that deep end. Brian, what was, the, what was your first fire experience? Well, I'm, I'm probably a little different just because I, um, just because of how I got, I got initiated. Uh, my first fire was a 600 acre burn Woo. and it was a, it was a glade. It was a, it was a, actually a mountain to where yep. we actually rung, we rung an entire mountain. So, so wow. my first experience was probably a little different, but we had a crew. <laughs> it was, I, I was on a crew with, you know, I was green and I didn't know all I knew I was supposed to stand up against a rake and make sure the fire didn't get on the wrong side of the line. So, yep. you know, that was a, you know, but, uh, but that was my first kind of, uh, experience with it. But, um, to be honest with you over the years, I've just having, you know, having prior history with the, uh, our local state agency here in Missouri and, and living in the Ozarks, I, you know, I've been on several thousands of acres, both prescribed burn and wildfire burns. Uh-huh. Um, you know, I mean, I, I guess my biggest wildfire burn was about 3,500 acres here in Missouri wow. and, you know, just it, but, you know, but that was, that took us, it was, a. Uh, I I saw the sun, I saw the sun, uh, said a couple times on that burn i don't but, uh, doubt that you know but the long story short is though i mean it's uh, if, if you're right every single fire is different and you should but you should go ahead and experience one and start out small mm-hmm. but just remember that a grassland you know the a key point is grassland burns are hot and scary but they go fast yes and woodland burns that you know oftentimes can fool you because they'll go slow and they'll kind of trickle and you think they're not going to take. And then all of a sudden they'll take. And, 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 and so you've got, I, you know, grassland burns are the ones that oftentimes have people on edge. Mm-hmm. Um, and woodland burns, I think are the ones that can sneak up on you. Yes. So, you know, kind of, you know, uh, um, you know, but on the bright side of things, your stress level, again, on a grassland burn, your stress level goes up real quick and it falls right back down pretty quick yes. on grassland burns. You, your stress level is kind of there at the beginning. Then you're like, ah, I can kind of falter. Um, you know, one that we did uh, two weeks ago. Uh-huh. You know, had it was in a in a in a pretty net in a spot that honestly, you know, the whole fire it was 119 acres. Um, you know, and this was this was a private this was on a private contracting deal that I was doing, uh-huh. and you know, just honestly wasn't wasn't doing any. You know, wasn't burning as intensely as I wanted it to. But I knew it wasn't going to because this is in a low-lying area, had springs and seeps, and sure. and we just knew it wasn't going to burn. It was just kind of essentially what we're doing with this is trying to burn out a little bit, as much of the perimeter as we possibly could, um, you know. But you know, we were gone. We'd been gone two hours, you know, from a location, mm-hmm. and yet we had just, you know, I I just kind of told I had three guys behind me, and I told one guy that was on a UTV. I said, hey, I said you know what? I said, I need some torch fuel. Go ahead and go back and get me some. And I said, but go, go back up the line and, uh, you know, you know, either going, going to the truck or coming back just to kind of see, make sure that, uh, everything looks good. Well, and I'm glad that he did because he had, 
you know, the wind had shifted a little bit right. and had, had had sparked an ember right in the middle of our fire line and had just started to creep outside of our fire line. Wow. Um, and, and because this was actually, that fire line was a little different. It was, we had a, uh, we had a grass fire line in this, mm-hmm. even though we we're in a woodland setting, um, the fire line was a, about a 50 foot wide swath of, of grass. Gotcha. And, and I say grass, but it was mowed down to about two, you know, about an inch and a half, two right, inches tall. Right, right. So, you know, but long story short is that had we not come back, it, it, it would have been there was an uphill slope on the other side. Eesh. There's no telling where it would have been by the time we got a hold of it. Sure. You know, so I mean, you know, like I said, I mean, we've been gone from that site for two hours, mm-hmm. and you know, and and it had just skipped across. And the, so, you know, like I said, it's there. You know, those woodland burns and some of those situations don't be. You know, you know, don't un, don't underestimate what they can do. You know, even a few hours later, especially when you have what we call heavy fuels, and I don't want to use too many terms but heavy fuels are just fuels that will burn longer i mean yes. essentially log piles you know logs right. or, or you know or, or larger type uh larger type items that will kind of smolder and, and simmer for a while yeah but uh you know so i mean but you know that also highlights the point too i mean it's it's i'm, I'm always one that once i burn once my burn is complete um i may i may sit there till dark but i'm going to come back the next morning as well just to kind of uh just to kind of just kind of look at things, well, look and, things over, and 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 having said at dark, I can tell you if conditions are right, uh, you know you truly want to see a burn, you know I rec I highly recommend you seeing a nighttime burn. Oh uh, man, just, yes. You know, just I mean, number one, I mean you get to see the full effect, you know, a little more readily, you know, but also you get to kind of see things that you don't get to see during daylight, which are all the embers and the ash that are blowing across your line. Yeah. That you don't see during daytime, you know, you, and, 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 and so it's kind of one of those things to where it makes you think, okay, humidity does, does matter, Um, you know, and moisture levels and things like that do matter because holy cow, you know, it, you know, when you start seeing some of that stuff kind of filter across your line that, that you don't see during daytime, you're you're like, man, oh man, that's kind of, you know, (laughs) I'd say don't, don't do it on your first burn, uh, you know, but I do recommend at some point in time, you know, do it a nighttime burn because it's, it's pretty pretty amazing and kind of all you know you you sit back and all you know looking at the fire and the flames but you know it does make you think like holy cow yeah and it's neat to see that orange little strip of fire going down a slope backing down a slope um everything Absolutely. else is just black and and kind of that midnight blue feel to it and then you just see that little glow um snack, snapping the the crackling the popping you see a couple big logs have been laying there forever and they're smoldering a little bit um there's a, a neat little feel to it for sure um but but brian i appreciate you you taking the time to jump on the podcast here um and chat about prescribed fire and different disturbances and, and managing the landscape um <clears throat> something we're all passionate about and we can all get behind and th- to the point of the podcast there's not a one rhyme or reason or a solution for every single property um, or every single timber unit. There's not a sequence of events that you can say is applicable to every single one um, that we face, that we come across, that's on your property. You know, every single property has its own unique um, bag of tricks or tools of the trade that need to be deployed at the right time um, with the right disturbance and... um, the right adding the right amount of sunlight to it it changes your landscape and changes the way you manage things so 
it's always fun to talk about it, Brian, especially with you, sir. And um, we appreciate everyone listening. And uh, hopefully you get encouraged and just dig around for more information, educate yourself on prescribed fire as a technique and as a tool. Um, and I know there's, there's, we have people write in all the time. There's, there's states out there that um, you're not allowed to do it. And consider writing. Consider um, doing your research and, and sharing peer-reviewed articles um, about the benefits about prescribed fire and what it can do to a landscape, making it more healthy, rejuvenating it, um, sending it to the right people. Because, again, everything within reason here um, and utilizing prescribed fire um, with the right hands can be a very valuable tool. So, Absolutely. And, you know, and I, I was just going to say, I mean, there's, you know, Missouri does not have burn laws, and there's some states that do and some yep. states don't. And, you know, but, yeah, if you, if you do not, if you are not allowed to use fire, I'd highly recommend looking at some of those states that do allow fire and recommending, legis- whether it's your legislature as well as your DNR and your forestry department to, to look at those, uh, look look to those states for guidance and assistance. And, you know, and if, if and also I would definitely want to re- you know, recommend folks to reach out to Land and Legacy, you know, talk about, you know, because you said have a plan. There's things, what's called the burn plan. There's templates out there. There's things that you can do. And I know you guys, you know, are well, well versed in that and definitely can, can help and assist with that. Yeah. Help. At least, at least give some, at least give some generalities. Anyway. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Helped, uh, actually communicate with a, um, forester out of Maryland for a client, um, to try and get them uh, registered to be able to uh, implement prescribed fire on their property. And uh, just this past week, we had clients in Ohio who were burning. Um, and then clients in Michigan as well, they were, they did their first burn. They went through um, Michigan's uh, prescribed fire workshop. You know what? Actually, I think it was a QDMA workshop with prescribed fire that they went through. Um, so that's another program to kind of check out. Anyhow, yeah. They they implemented their first prescribed fire, uh, brought the family out there, and are managing the land um, with neighbors involved in everything. So that was a that was a fantastic uh, just kind of illustration of hey, listen, you know these are first time guys using prescribed fire. It can be done. Um, it can be done safely and well. And I, I'm excited to kind of follow up with them and see exactly how it went and follow along with that progression of, of vegetation coming back because uh, Michigan, I. I don't know many people who burn there, but their landscape and their setting, um, certainly it was applicable, and I'm glad to see them implementing the plan and following through executing. So, anyways, Brian, got anything else to add? No, I definitely appreciate it. Like I said, it's kind of a last week was going to everything wet to this week. We're going to hoping for dry so we can burn. So, yeah, <laughs> right. it's def- definitely uh, going from one extreme to the other. Yes, we are. Well, uh, before we know it, um, hopefully we'll be – chasing the turkey together uh yeah i'm actually i'm hoping uh depending on when the podcast comes out but april 6th is our youth season opens here yeah. in missouri so Oof, i'm getting excited i've got a i've got a 13 year old that he and i are itching to get out man that's great that's great well fantastic um take care brian again appreciate your time sir anytime well thanks guys for listening to this week's podcast habitat heroes um talking with brian tal about prescribed fire man there's just so much um information out there and and valuable resources to be able to latch on to um and and just manage and cover so many different acres 
and different types of vegetation, resetting that with prescribed fire. So, again, encourage you to continue uh, reaching out to us with questions, info at landlegacy.tv, um, and, and reach out to your, your conservation departments, DNRs, to learn more about what workshops are available out there for you guys. Um, appreciate you listening. Appreciate you following along. Check us out on uh, Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and uh, landlegacy.tv. We'll catch you next week. See ya.